Uh, let me go ahead and introduce our, our text for the day. Uh, Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. We're going to look at some selected verses from that passage. And uh, while, you're, while you're finding that passage in your Bible, let me take, if I could, just a brief additional moment of personal privilege, not only to say thank you and congratulations on this special day, but I want to say to you, First Baptist, thank you for your part and role um, in our larger South Carolina Baptist Convention family. You just heard me say 2,100 plus churches, seven ministry partners uh, that, that are made possible because of churches just like uh, First Baptist Church. Uh, a huge part of that and one of my roles and responsibility is that when you put a, a dollar in a plate and you're offering here, a portion of that dollar comes through our office. I always like to say, Steve, it doesn't come to our office. It comes through our office because we, we channel those funds on uh, to places like the International Mission Board. So this morning, for example, 3,500-plus missionaries and their families fully funded by the corporate program serving somewhere all over the world, many of them in very hard, difficult, dark, dangerous places, and they're there because of you. And churches just like First Baptist. And so there's so many other things that I could say uh, to say thank you again for being uh, that kind of giving, cooperating church. But in addition to that, I want to say especially thank you for sharing uh, your pastor with us. He is currently the chairman of our executive board. And you say, what does that mean? Well, uh, in simple terms, he's my boss. So I really, really uh, am grateful for that. And uh, I do report to an executive board that is elected by the convention, and I serve at their pleasure, but I serve because God has called me to serve here very clearly. And, uh, and I just want to say thank you again. I know that that calls him away from the church here and from his family quite often, uh, particularly with the role and responsibility that he has. And in addition to that, with my announcing my retirement next year, he is also serving on the search team to find my replacement. So y'all really pray hard for him uh, and for that team as they're, they're hard at work, again, uh, trying to seek and find God's person to step into this role as I will be returning uh, to our home state of Alabama next spring at the end of April. Not retiring from ministry, but going into sort of what I hope will be a, a new phase of, of ministry and life for me and my wife, Gwen. And uh, not to mention the fact we have two grandbabies in Birmingham, Alabama, and that pull was pretty hard. They've kind of lured me in. So we'll be living uh, very near our family uh, and our granddaughters especially. Well, with that being said, uh, I hope you again have your Bible here open to Luke chapter 5. Normally, I would have you stand and honor the reading. We read the whole text. Uh, these 11 verses are a little lengthy, and it's a very familiar story for most of us. I'll kind of recap and retell that story in just a moment as we sort of dive in and look at some very personal, practical application points from this text. But the title today, the message theme is simply this, everything changes in the presence of Jesus. Everything changes in the presence of Jesus. And to set that up, I, I want to introduce this text this way. Another dear friend of mine, Bill Elliff, who is a pastor in Little Rock, Arkansas. I moved here seven years ago after having pastored for 10 years in Little Rock. And Bill Elliff pastored the Summit Church, just not too far down the road from where I was pastoring at Emmanuel Baptist Church. And uh, became very close friends with, with Bill. But Bill has written a wonderful little book, and it's entitled, The Presence-Centered Church. 
the presence-centered church. And the theme and thesis of that very easy-to-read, simple book is, is this. He makes this statement that everything, and by everything he means everything, flows from the presence of the Lord. And, and what does that mean to a, a congregation, for example, the presence-centered church? Well, it, it's this simple, that a church can have everything going for it. It can have beautiful facilities. It can have a great pastor and a wonderful staff and wonderful music and worship and fantastic people and programs and all kinds of things. But if there's not the clear evidence of the presence of God in the midst of it, as the old gospel song says, all is vain unless the Spirit comes down. That's what he means by a church that is dictated so that everything you do is dictated out of the flow of the presence of the Lord. And then he makes this very interesting observation in the early part of the book. He says, really, we can think about the presence of God in three specific ways, three categories. First of all, there's the universal presence of God. What, what do we mean by that? Well, of course, you know, that means that God, because he's God, is everywhere all the time at the same time. We call that in theological terms the omnipresence of God. And so in practical terms, what that means this morning is that every atheist, every agnostic, every skeptic, every cynic, even those who don't believe in God woke up this morning and God was there. The presence of God was there universally. And how do we know that so? Well, the Bible says the heavens declare the handiwork of God. Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The psalmist in Psalm chapter 8 said, When I consider, when I ponder the sun and the moon and the stars, who am I that I would even be worthy to be in your presence? And so in a real way, everyone, whether they're aware of it or not, enjoys the universal, general presence of God. But he goes on to say, though the presence of God we can think about in a second way. And the Bible gives very clear evidence of this second as well. And the second way we can think about the presence of God is what Bill called the cultivated presence of God. And what, what does he mean by that? Well, we find it in verses like my life verse, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, that says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things in life will be added to you. In other words, there's the cultivation of seeking the presence of God. Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 6 says it this way, Seek the Lord while he may be found. There may come a time that you're seeking, you're trying to cultivate that presence, but because of your sins or because of some other barrier that, that you're just not in that, in that close communion. You're enjoying the universal presence, but there's not that cultivated sense of the presence of God that you're actively seeking the presence and the face of God, the favor of God. But then he gives this third category, and it is this third category that is our subject today out of Luke chapter 5. And he calls that the manifest presence of God. Well, what is that, you say? Well, the manifest presence of God is a moment. You've probably had them, I've had them. But it's that moment or moments in our life 
where there is just no doubt that God is present in a real, personal, powerful way. No, no, it could be, it could have been in a worship service like this. You just experienced personally that presence of God. It could have been at a, at a retreat. It could have been at a camp. It could have been at a revival meeting. It could have been for some in a hospital room. It could have been in a doctor's office. It could have been in a number of settings, but it, it, the presence of God was just so evident and so real to you. It was the manifest presence of God. Uh, again, Isaiah in chapter 6 and in verse 1, uh, that's a biblical description of the manifest presence of God. Isaiah said it this way, it was the year King Uzziah died and he says, I saw the Lord. I saw him seated upon his throne, high and lifted up, and the, the train of his robe filled the temple. In other words, Isaiah said, I knew I was in the presence of God. In Exodus chapter 3, familiar story, Moses and the burning bush. I mean, it's just an ordinary bush, but all of a sudden, it was not only burning, but it was talking. And Moses knew that he was in the presence of God, a manifest moment of the presence of God for me personally. And, and I've, I've had many over the course of my life. It doesn't happen every day uh, that I, I sense it, but uh, once was at the bedside of my father in April of 2001, again in September of 2012, when I stood with my father and with my mother as they took their last earthly breaths and they entered the portals of heaven. And I've described it to people and have said in that those holy moments when I was standing there with my mom and dad passed away, absent from the body, present with the Lord, is that there was just that moment that God was there. We knew that in that moment, we kind of walked them to the gates of glory, got them as far as we could go, and they passed from this life into the next, and we knew that God was present. Have you been there? You know what I'm talking about, the manifest presence of God. Well, in Luke chapter 5, we have one of those moments. And here's the reason I love this text that we're going to kind of look at as we go through this. It's such a familiar story. And it's such a common, ordinary moment in the life of Simon Peter. And who, uh, in this moment, he and his professional fishing buddies have been doing what professional fishermen do. They had been out fishing. And they had caught nothing. They had worked all night long. And they'd done everything they knew how to do. It was just one of those days. And they'd been fishing, but no fish. And yet now, into this common, ordinary moment, fishing, Jesus steps in. And when Jesus steps in, the presence of Jesus, everything changed, as we're going to see as we walk through this story. Because while they had done everything they could do, then Jesus shows up. And, I, you know, I, this isn't in the Bible. I, this is my sanctified imagination when I think about it this way. But don't you know that old Simon Peter, again, who was a professional fisherman, this is what he did for a living, and he knew Jesus. Now, this is in the early days, early stages, so they're still trying to figure all this out. Uh, it's, it's, it hasn't all come 100% clear about this Jesus. They knew that they, they, they'd already believed he was Messiah. They're following him, but they still had some questions. So here Jesus, who was a carpenter, right, his father Joseph, Jesus' father, was a carpenter. And now this carpenter is telling this fisherman how to fish. Well, Peter, I'll tell you what. If you'll just put your 
boat out there and drop the net again, I'm sure Peter's thinking, sure, and what are you going to tell me about catching fish? You build benches, you don't catch fish. I, 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 don't, I know that's not in the Bible, but I just can't imagine that those thoughts were ringing through Peter's head. But we're going to find a verse that Peter, knowing Jesus and believing by faith who he was, said, okay, Lord, at your word, I'll do what you're telling me to do. Now, that's the backdrop of the story, and they do what Jesus said to do. And now there is this miraculous, enormous catch of fish after they've been working all night long. When Jesus shows up, everything changes. And just let that hang over your life today because when Jesus shows up in our lives in those manifest moments, I'm telling you, everything changes. Well, let's look first of all, I told you we're going to be some practical points of application. I want us to begin with one in verse 5. Here's the point, then we'll read verse 5. The point is simply this. This story is a reminder of our inadequacy and his sufficiency. Our inadequacy and Jesus' sufficiency. Look at verse 5 with me. But Simon answered and said to him, Now, Master, here he is. We've toiled all night. You carpenter, you know, I'm a fisherman, but we've worked all night long and we've caught nothing. But I love this. He says, But nevertheless... At your word, I will let down the net. Now, now, what's happening here is that Peter, in this moment, is acknowledging that they'd done everything they knew to do and had come up empty. And yet they were trusting Jesus that at his word, that what Jesus told them to do was going to bring a better result. By the way, that's true in your life and my life. Anytime we do what Jesus tells us to do, the results are always better. You do know that. We can do it our way, and we get our results. We do it his way, we get his results. Which do you want? I believe I want God's results. So it's his insufficiency versus God's more than enough sufficiency. Matter of fact, I heard Junior Hill, an evangelist uh, friend of mine, uh, from my home state of Alabama. And years ago, I heard him when I was a young pastor preaching out of this text. He preached a totally different message, but I remember how he said this, and I want to give credit to him. He said it this way. He said, you know, Simon Peter and his friends knew fishing, but Jesus knew the fish. Now, I like that. In other words, they'd done everything they knew how to do, but Jesus actually knew where the fish were because he knew the fish. He had created the fish, had he not? He was present at creation. And if it's true that Jesus in this moment knew the fish, he knows you, and he knows me, and he knows us. And when we're feeling woefully inadequate, even when we've tried to do everything we know how to do to the best of our ability, unless he shows up, then we're in trouble. As a matter of fact, and I've, I've acknowledged this in the other services, Steve, so I know you're really thrilled to hear this a third time, but it's possible. I know it's possible because I've done it. Did you know that you can do ministry and do it in the flesh? You can do good things for God and yet do it out of the flesh? I've preached many a sermon that, you know, I had prepared and I had the outline and I had the illustrations and maybe told a joke and people laughed and I told a story and people cried and it felt so good and nothing spiritual happened. Why? Because it was me, it wasn't God. I've been there. We can all do, you can teach that Sunday school lesson and do it in the flesh. You can sing in that worship 
song or, or sing as a worship leader or in the choir or play that musical instrument or teach that that group of first graders are do a lot of good things but if we don't do them with the presence of Jesus and we don't really realize that we're inadequate without his presence as a matter of fact over in John chapter 15 and verse 5 in that wonderful teaching uh, using the illustration from the world of agriculture when Jesus said I'm the vine you're the branches and apart from me you can do nothing let let that hang over you for just a moment apart from the presence of jesus we really can't do anything including preach a sermon including preaching this sermon including 35 years of great ministry without the presence of god and i know your pastor well enough to know that he is a man who is deeply driven by making sure everything flows from the presence of the lord our in our inadequacy against his sufficiency but there's a second principle in verse 8 and let me give you the principle and then we'll read the verse the second principle is this in this moment particularly simon peter came to understand his sinfulness and for us today our sinfulness versus his holiness our sinfulness and his holiness look at verse 8 Now, when Simon Peter saw it, and what is the it? We're talking about the miraculous catch of fish. When they put the nets down, so much as we'll see in just a moment that uh, more fish than they could have, maybe than they'd ever caught before. I don't know. We'll come back to that. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. This is a holy moment. Everything's changing. Peter's looking at Jesus now in this moment, certainly because of the miracle he had just witnessed, but he's beginning to understand who Jesus was and who he was. And by the way, that has to happen to every one of us before you can come to Christ in salvation. You do know that. Every one of us have to acknowledge that we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. Pastor Steve, I've heard people say it this way, that the problem, some people never get saved because they don't know that they're lost. You have to first believe that you're lost. before you, if, you, if, you don't, if, you're, if you don't think you're lost, you won't need to be saved. And Simon Peter's clearly realizing in this moment that he's in the presence of God and that compared to the presence of God and his holiness, he is nothing but a sinner. You and I both are, all of us, are sinners Saved by the grace of God. Aren't you grateful for God's grace? I mean, where would any of us be without it? Grace means, and you've heard this old definition, but it's God's riches at Christ's expense. It's what he does when we don't deserve it. That's grace. By the way, mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve. We deserve punishment. We deserve death and even hell. He doesn't give us that. That's mercy. He gives us grace. Peter is realizing as a sinner he needed the grace of God and the holiness of God. Now I want to talk with you about the holiness of God for just a moment. Why would he fall at Jesus' knees and cry out, Lord, just depart from me because I'm just nothing than a sinner. He's really seen the holiness of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And I want to talk with you for just a brief moment about having a proper understanding of the holiness of God. Peter, later on when he writes his epistles in 1 Peter, he talks about and quotes the old Levitical law that says, Be holy because I am holy. 
how can I, a sinner, be holy? How can you be holy? What does it mean to be holy? Well, make sure you know what the word means. The word holy means set apart for a special use. That's what the word means. Set apart for a specific purpose and use. I'll illustrate it this way. Uh, My wife and I will soon have been married 44 years, and still in our home, we have three kinds of plates that we eat off of. We eat off of paper plates every now and then, disposable plates, and when we eat off of disposable plates, that's the night I always say, here, dear, let me do the dishes. You get the point, okay? You know, y'all know what it's like to eat off of paper plates, throwaway plates. We eat off of those. We also have some other plates, and this is kind of more normal. It's called our everyday china. You you with me? We got married. uh, People gave us gifts, and they gave us plates, and we're still eating on those same plates, a lot of them. And we've added a few to the the kitchen along the way, but it's, it's called everyday china. And then in our home, we have a room that I've been in maybe twice. I don't know, not very many times. It's called the dining room. Can I get a witness? You know, it's that... It's that room that you reserve for when Pastor Steve and his dear wife are coming to dinner. And in our dining room, we have a dining cabinet that those plates are so special that we let everybody see them when they come in. You you with me? You put them out there. They're on display. And that's called your fine china. Y'all with me? Everybody with me, right? Now, that's a silly simple way to better understand that when we talk about the holiness of God is that being set apart for special service is the fine china of our spiritual life you and I have been set apart to be holy now that doesn't mean that we don't eat off of here's the good part you eat off of the spiritual fine china every single day we want that plate not our plate But the special person that God makes us when we acknowledge our holiness and his sinfulness is that we want the world to know that there's something different about us. That's what it means to be holy. As a matter of fact, often our best witness, now we we need to always use words when we witness. We need to tell people specifically about Jesus. But have, have you ever heard this before when people say, I came to know Christ because I worked with this lady or I worked with this man or I knew this student at school and they had something that I didn't have. You with me? In other words, there was something about your life that was attractive because you were just different. What is it that's different in your life? That's where you can say, it's Jesus. That's what Simon Peter is saying. Lord, I'm just this common, ordinary, plain old fisherman of us, but I'm a sinner. And now I know I'm in the presence of of holiness, holy God in the person of Jesus. So there is our inadequacy, his sufficiency, our sinfulness, his holiness. But there's a third point of application I think we find in this story, and it's found over in verse 9. Let me give you the principle, then we'll look at the verse. The principle is this, and this is similar to the first principle of our inadequacy and his sufficiency. The third one is this. Our inabilities versus his abundance. Our inabilities versus his abundance. Here's the verse. For he, speaking of Simon Peter, and all who were with him, watch this, 
they were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. I mean, it was so much, verse 6 had said, that there were so many fish, their nets were breaking, and the boats were even beginning to sink. In other words, it was more fish than they'd ever perhaps caught before. They'd caught a lot of fish, but nothing like this. There was an abundance. Now, what does that mean to us? You see, when we kind of come to that point that we realize that we have some abilities, God gives all of us certain abilities, and then God also gives us, gives you as a believer, not just abilities, but spiritual gifts. If you don't know anything about spiritual gifts, read 1 Corinthians 12, read Romans chapter 12. There's so many great, read Ephesians chapter 4, that talk about spiritual gifts that God gives, and he expects us to use those spiritual gifts, but not just because we have an ability, whatever that might be, is that when we realize that our very best, like Simon Peter and these fishermen, doing everything they knew to do and caught nothing, doing their very best, when we give God what we do have, that he absolutely will blow our minds and it will astound us how much spiritual fruit there will be born. As a matter of fact, Paul in his little prayer in chapter 3 of the book of Ephesians, he prays for the church in Ephesus. I love this. Here's, here's how he prayed. He said, And now to him, God, who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above, more than any of us could even ask or imagine to him be glory in the church world without end oh my goodness what's he saying well and i'm from alabama i'll just use a little alabama vernacular here the alabama vernacular of that is that it will absolutely blow your mind what god will do through you if you'll give him what you have isn't that what happened with the little boy at the feeding of the five thousand? just a little boy had a few loaves of Bread and a few fish, you know the story. Isn't it interesting? Fish came back up in that story. I just thought about that. But when he gave, gave Jesus what he had, Jesus multiplied it, not only fed the 5,000, but you remember had baskets left over. Do you want abundance in your life? And I'm not talking about the kind of abundance that the health and wealth and the prosperity preachers that you can read and hear about on TV, that, that's not what is at stake here. What is at stake is that God will use you and me and us to bring an abundance of spiritual fruit back to John 15. Keep reading in that chapter. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But what we give, he said, I'll produce fruit in you tenfold, fiftyfold, why even a hundredfold. That's the abundance of the life in Christ. John 10, 10. The enemy, the thief, has come to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life, and how it kind of life? Life abundantly. There's abundance in the spiritual life of Jesus. That's what happens when Jesus shows up in our life like he did here. One final thing, and we're done. And I really like this last little point here. And it's found in the latter part of verse 10 and verse 11 in our text. And here it is. The application is... What Simon Peter and these guys are actually getting is a new and even a greater assignment from God. I mean, catching fish was good. It was their job. And nowhere in here does it tell Peter that he can't keep fishing. But Jesus is going to say, but Peter and all you guys, 
what you've been doing is just going to be a platform for a new kind of ministry. Here, here's the verse, beginning in the last part of verse 10. So Jesus says to Simon, Now, Simon, do not be afraid, because from now on, you're going to catch men. Not just fish, you're going to catch people. And so when they brought in their boats, they brought their boats to land, and they forsook all, and they followed him. Now, now stay with me as we close this message right here. What do you do? And I, I, I can partly mean your vocation, but if you're a student, you know, you can be in the 10th grade, what do you do? Well, you go to math class, you go to English class, maybe you're uh, in the band, maybe you're in the chorus, maybe you play sports. I mean, you know, all of us, even those of us who are about to retire, I'm not retiring from ministry, I'm just changing platforms, so to speak. So what is it that you do? Maybe you're already a retiree. You don't get up and go to the office every morning, but, but you have a platform. You have your family. You have your neighbors. You may have a, a hobby. You may have some ministry. Whatever. All of us have a platform. And here's the deal. When we think about what it is that we do, what this text is really teaching us is that in the presence of Jesus, whatever it is that we do at any given moment in life needs to be a platform for doing it for Jesus, a new and greater assignment. How can we use what we do to tell other people about Jesus? One of the best illustrations I know of this is Chick-fil-A. Anybody like Chick-fil-A in here? Everybody? Okay. You know, I'm, kind of, I'm glad they're not open on Sunday. I really am. I kind of miss it. Yeah. Have you ever driven in a Chick-fil-A on a Sunday? Uh, yeah. And then you go, ah, tomorrow, you know, and and that's okay. But let me tell you about Chick-fil-A. You probably know a lot of this story, but Chick-fil-A, founded by a man named Truett Cathy, who died some years ago, but it's still family-run. And a few years ago, I, I served on staff of the North American Mission Board in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, one of the guys I worked for, John Avant was his name, had been the pastor at New Hope Baptist Church in Fayetteville, Georgia, of Dan Cathy, the son, one of the sons of Truett Cathy. Dan Cathy, along with other family members, still run uh, Chick-fil-A from the, the very top management. So the reason I'm telling you that story is uh, uh, in the job that I had, the ministry I had at, at North American Mission Board, we would from time to time fly in leaders from around the country for various meetings and the, the Chick-fil-A corporate office is five minutes from the Atlanta airport. And our office in Alpharetta was an hour from the Atlanta airport on a good day. And so uh, John, my boss, asked Mr. Kathy, hey, if we bring in small groups of leaders, could we use a conference room there at Chick-fil-A from time to time? Sure, y'all come on. So we loved it when we had groups and we're meeting at Chick-fil-A for this reason, is that when you go... When you're a guest there or you work there, downstairs in the Chick-fil-A building is a cafeteria, like a school cafeteria. It's, it's at least as large as this worship center, maybe larger. And you get to eat for free every day. Oh, my goodness, I couldn't work there, let me tell you. It'd be a bad thing. And I'm not just talking all the Chick-fil-A you want, all the milkshakes you want. Oh, can you get, are you with me? You just go load up with milkshakes, and we did. We believed in church growth, we used to like to say. So anyway, so we're at Chick-fil-A and at a meeting, and if Mr. Kathy happened to be in town, John, my friend, would say, Mr. Kathy, 
We have a group in today. We, we, if you have a moment, could you stop by and just speak to them? Just say hello. Sure. So many, many times, Dan Kathy would stop in to say hello to us. Well, it was one of those meetings. We were sort of finished eating. Mr. Kathy came by, greeted us, sat down with us for a moment or two, and got to chit-chat. And then at the end, we were getting ready to break up, and he starts going to each of us, and we had little lunch trays, okay, little school lunch trays. You had your Chick-fil-A on your little lunch tray. And he starts getting our trays and getting our trash and collecting our trash. This is the owner of Chick-fil-A, okay? And we were in, uh, Mr. Kathy, no, 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 we'll get our trash. Well, you don't have to do that. And you're going to love this, what he said. And he looks at us, and he says, oh, it's my pleasure. Have you heard that before? <laughs> now, you talk about setting the culture in a corporation from the top down. And he said, oh, no, 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 it's my pleasure. Please let me serve you. Now, that's a great story, just to know that even Mr. Kathy is glad to, to serve you. But that's not why I'm telling you the story. Out front of their building, when you go in, there's a big rock. And on that rock is inscribed their corporate mission. And I'm kind of paraphrasing this. I wish I had a picture of it. It's been some years since I've been. But it, that rock had these words, something like this. We exist to glorify God and tell people about Jesus Christ. And all the while, we thought they sold chicken. You know? Who knew? And so we, we brought that up to Mr. Kathy one time about, about his father's vision. He said, oh, no, no. He said, he said we, we want to sell a lot of chicken, and they sell a lot of chicken. You know? But he said, now here is a quote. He said, we use chicken as our platform to share Jesus. And by the way, they get in a lot of trouble for that by some people today, don't they? But you know what? I... I they're using their platform. You don't have to be the owner of Chick-fil-A to get this last principle, that God has something in your life, in my life, in our lives, that is a new and a greater calling. Catching fish, serving chicken, whatever, fill in the blank. That's good. But from now on, you're going to be catching men, women, boys, girls, teenagers for Jesus Christ. So have you found your mission, your purpose, your greater, newer purpose in life of using what you do and who you are as just a platform and an excuse to tell somebody about Jesus? That's when you know the manifest presence of Jesus is in your life.